Watch your mugs. Following the Norwegian, Scottish and other Norwegian expeditions, many people talked about returning to Antarctica, but it was the Belgians who actually got it together to send a ship. That things went downhill from there doesn't negate that they had the can do to could do it, but the stirrings of future efforts were afoot at the same time and warrant some mention to foreshadow events in subsequent episodes. William Spears Bruce, frustrated by the scant opportunities to go ashore granted him on the Dundee Whalers' voyage, imagined a British national expedition putting prestige ahead of profit and demonstrating to the world that Brits held ground against the rising fortunes and ambitions of its European neighbours. And if Britain as a whole didn't go, why not a Scottish expedition? Yorkshire-born Sir Clements Markham spent his youth in the Royal Navy and applied himself to learning all he could about the places his occupation took him. Involvement in an 1850 Arctic voyage in search of Sir John Franklin, already long dead, already long dead, gave Markham his first experience of polar travel. It was Markham who smuggled seeds of the chinchona tree out of Peru to India, where quinine alkaloids from the tree bark were used to fight malaria and allowed British interests to really thrive by oppressing the locals without all that bothersome sweating and shaking and dying that malaria caused. It was another voyage to the Arctic in 1877, undertaken without official naval consent, that forced Markham to resign his commission. But he was already established as Secretary of the Royal Geographical Society, and his role with this agency, and duties translating and publishing accounts of exploration with the Hayklute Society, kept him busy for the next decade. Not everyone loved the Geographical Society, a child institute of the Royal Society dedicated solely to exploration and geographic discovery. In 1864, when the whole of Britain buzzed with Royal Geographic Society promulgated news of Livingstone's discoveries in Africa, Joseph Hooker wrote of the RGS, I hate the claptrap and flattery and flummery of the Royal Geographical, with its utter want of science and craving for popularity and excitement. The RGS also drew fire for failing to adapt to social mores in the late 19th century. Anyone contemplating the sexism inherent to the Victorian era might be surprised to hear that pressures from social progressives saw the men-only organisation accept 22 women as members in 1892. The decision caused uproar, and while the 22 new members were not ousted, no further women were allowed to join for another two decades. This might seem an odd footnote to bring to the table at this point, but the membership scandal acted as a lever on Clements Markham's actions over the next decade. In 1893, elevated to president of both societies, Clements Markham campaigned for a naval expedition to the Antarctic as a means to challenge the next generation of naval officers to greatness, to explore uncharted regions, and to give Britain the prestige associated with going where no other nation had. Where Bruce concentrated on scientific honours, Markham fixed his ambitions on seeing Britain achieve primacy at the South Pole. Markham commissioned Sir John Murray to lecture at the Royal Geographic Society on the opportunities the Southern Ocean offered Britain. Couching his rhetoric in terms of maintaining the scientific lead achieved by his own efforts aboard the HMS Challenger, Sir John reinforced Clements Markham's advocacy that the South should be viewed as a proving ground for the Royal Navy's up-and-comers, a place for young naval officers to acquire valuable experiences and to perform deeds of daring do. Between them, Murray and Markham stirred up considerable interest in Antarctic exploration by appeals to national prestige. Markham made no bones that science was a means to an end in promoting further exploration. To his mind, no one should be allowed to show them up by reaching the pole ahead of a Briton, Murray pushed that no other nation's scientific programs should be seen to outstrip the lead given Britain by the Challenger expedition. William Spears Bruce was asked to step up from his seat in the audience and give a brief account of the Dundee whaling expedition. His concessions that it constituted neither a profitable or scientifically edifying voyage didn't damp down the fervour stirred up by Murray's presentation, and Bruce volunteered to spend a winter ashore in Antarctica as part of the National Exploratory Expedition that seemed to be taking shape as they spoke. 
Murray proposed a two-ship expedition with shore parties equipped to stay over the winter and scientific leaders to lead the science, but the estimated cost lay well outside what the government and private sponsors might provide. Getting a room full of geography enthusiasts enthusiastic about a geographic expedition is a different matter to getting a government to pay for that expedition. With the British Empire approaching its bloated maxima, officials could see little mileage in extending the pink across further expanses of the globe if there was no immediately obvious payoff in resources or labour. Prestige be damned. The British Colonial Office expressed some interest in the claims to fishing rights off the Antarctic Peninsula made by Argentinian fishers, but that interest lapsed when the Argentine government expressed no interest in following up on the matter. Professor Chris Turney, in his book 1912, The Year the World Discovered Antarctica, associates the governmental reticence to fund large and risky expeditions with the failure of Burke and Wills in Australia in 1860. Robert O'Hara Burke and William John Wills at the behest of the Royal Society of Victoria, set out from Melbourne to traverse the continent from south to north. Ill-equipped, ill-informed, and too arrogant to heed anyone willing to help them, particularly the locals, this pair of incompetence led seven of their party, including themselves, to slow, horrific, starving deaths, at a cost of £60,000, the most yet spent in colonial projects in Australia. If you ever hear of my arrest in my hometown, one likely cause is that long-standing plans to urinate on the statue at the corner of Collins and Swanson Streets, dedicated to Burke and Wills, have finally been acted on. Admiralty, Foreign Office and Colonial Office indifference to following up British explorers' claims, combined with suppressed economic conditions, meant Markham struggled to gain traction for his ideas among those who could realise them. His next tack was to seek private funding to put ashore a small team for a winter occupancy and attempts on the Magnetic and South Poles, inspired by the recommendations arising from Henrik Bull's recent experiences. Markham organised the International Geographical Congress in London in 1895. Attended by French, Belgian, German, Swedish and Norwegian delegates, among them Karsten Borkrevink, Markham told those present, The exploration of the Antarctic regions is the greatest piece of geographical exploration yet to be undertaken. Representatives of the various nations agreed with their host, and also agreed to establish non-overlapping magisteria in any attempt to explore the South. Borkrevink, though not well liked by the other attendees, left a strong impression with his energy and drive. Royal Geographic Society member Dr H.R. Mill recounted, his blunt manner and abrupt speech stirred the academic discussions with a fresh breeze of realism. Meanwhile, Dr Frederick Cook, surgeon on Robert Peary's Arctic expedition in 1891, petitioned the US government for contributions to an American expedition to the Antarctic, but his efforts met with little success, US interests in high latitudes rapidly coming to focus on Alaska because gold, and American interests more generally, later taken up in the Spanish-American War. With the Americans indifferent, the British keen to get moving but unfunded, Borkrevink eager to capitalise on his recent experiences at Cape Adair, and Georg Neumeyer pushing for a German expedition with the support of Erich von Drygalski, Arctic veteran and professor of geography at the University of Berlin. Everyone was surprised when Belgian up and gazumped a lot of them by actually doing the verbs. The Brussels Geographical Society, with a little help from a rich friend, announced an expedition to be led by 29-year-old Royal Belgian Navy Lieutenant Adrian Victor Joseph Baron de Gerlache de Gomery. De Gerlache previously volunteered to join a Swedish expedition, but it all fell through. The Belgian government, busy with their interests in Africa, didn't show much interest, only stumping up a third of the expenses and not releasing any naval hardware and few crew so the expedition drew heavily on expertise and enthusiasm from abroad. Norwegian Roald Amundsen, the son of a doctor, chucked his medical studies in Christiania, now known as Oslo, for a life of adventure. He offered to travel with the expedition unpaid and shipped as first mate under Royal Belgian Naval Lieutenant George Laquant, also the expedition's astronomer. Frederick Cook, unable to make headway with his American contemporaries, also joined de Gerlache's crew 
The expedition's scientific contingent comprised Romanian zoologist Emil Rakowitz and Polish geologist and meteorologist Henrik Alktowski, their lab assistant being Russian. De Gerlach bought a Norwegian whaler of 30 metres and 250 tonnes displacement with a 150 horsepower steam engine and renamed it Belgica. New accommodations and laboratories placed the Belgica low in the water, making her sluggish under sail and giving an uncomfortable motion under steam. Given no government orders outlining particular goals, the expedition departed Antwerp in August 1897 with a vague ambition to sail east along the Antarctic coast from the peninsula, spend the austral winter of 1898 in Melbourne, then explore the Victoria land coast the following summer. The Belgica staged through Rio and Punta Arenas. De Gerlach spent a month exploring Tierra del Fuego, making the mid-January start to exploring in the Antarctic waters extremely late in the summer season. The mooted plans to begin work to the east of the peninsula being precluded by ice in the Weddell Sea. The ship sailed to the west of the peninsula. The crew made around 20 landings on various islands for geological samples, made at breakneck speed if Aktowski's notes about frantic geologizing offer an accurate picture of their efforts. Rakowitz discovered mites and small insects ashore, the first such recorded in Antarctica. Another first for the expedition, the first photographs taken in Antarctica. On one good weather day, 300 photographic plates captured the entirety of the vistas they sailed past. De Gerlach discovered a body of water he named the Belgica Strait, but later geographers renamed it after him. The Gerlach Strait, positioned on the less consistently icy of the two sides of the Antarctic Peninsula, and offering opportunities to see the widest range of wildlife and landscapes for the least amount of fuel oil, is a favourite among Antarctic tour operators. Cook managed to get some Americana on the charts, naming the Palmer Archipelago after his nation's leading Antarctic notable. On the 22nd of January, a northerly storm caused loads of coal to break free from their stowage and cover the deck, blocking the scuppers and freeing ports. In his attempts to clear the dangerous blockages, seaman Carl Vinker lost his footing and went overboard. He caught hold of the ship's logline and was towed alongside, but lost his grip and drowned. Lieutenant Lequant showed his metal being lowered into the water to attempt to get a stronger hauling line around Vinker but very nearly drowned himself in the effort. On February 15th, the ship crossed the Antarctic Circle. De Gerlach discussed the possibility of overwintering in the area with his crew, but most were not taken with the idea. The expedition carried on south through increasingly dense pack, following what leads as could be found, but on March 2nd, after six weeks exploring among the islands around the peninsula, the Belgica was iced in at 71 degrees 30 minutes south, a ship trapped in pack, by now a common occurrence in the Arctic, was another first in Antarctica for the crew of the Belgica, but few seemed happy about this primacy, and rumours quickly spread through the ship that de Gerlach's choices in arriving on site late in the season and pushing as far south as he did constituted a deliberate attempt to force them into wintering. Efforts to free the ship didn't impress the leader's critics, who deemed the attempts desultory. The crew heaped snow against the ship to reduce heat loss and hunkered down for a long, dark winter. Most accounts recount the crew remaining fairly cheerful at this point, resigning themselves to a routine of scientific observations and minor ship repairs for the duration. The cook instituted a rolling menu, trying to make the most interesting use of the preserved foods. People planned projects to see them through the long months ahead. De Gerlach would rewrite the ship's log, Cook would write a book. Amundsen intended making repairs to or improved designs of sleds and skis. Amundsen and Dr Cook, the two most practical people aboard, killed and stored penguins and seals in preparation for the looming winter. As the weeks passed, the external isolation and internal closeness began to tell on the crew mood. The stark contrast between their own situation and the seasonal shift they knew they were missing in the northern spring saw the Easter period pass as a bleak milestone. Boredom over the food, despite the cook's best efforts to maintain some variety, and discontent over de Gerlach's failure to supply effective cold weather clothing and lamps, wore down what cheer remained. On May 17th, 
they saw the sun for the last time for 70 days. None of the mooted winter projects was even started. In his book, Through the First Antarctic Night, Dr Cook recounts the toastiness. The regular routine of our work is tiresome in the extreme, not because it is difficult of execution or requires great physical exertion, but because of its monotony. Day after day, week after week, and month after month, we rise at the same hour, eat the same things, talk on the same subjects, make a pretense of doing the same work, and look upon the same icy wilderness. We try hard to introduce new topics for thought and new concoctions for the weary stomach. We strain the truth to introduce stories of home and flowery future prospects, hoping to infuse a new cheer, but it all fails miserably. We are under the spell of the black Antarctic night, and, like the world which darkens, we are cold, cheerless, and inactive. We have aged ten years in thirty days. Lethargy, depressed appetite, and poor concentration. Classic signs of toastiness coincided with the last sunrise. Several of the crew felt an additional layer of isolation in that the mixed bag of nationalities meant the ship boasted no common language. As the toastiness reached its apex, one crewman became convinced the French word for something actually meant kill and attacked anyone who spoke it. Another crewman suffered the ice equivalent of calenture, heading off across the pack on foot determined to walk back to Belgium. Symptoms of scurvy set in as the crew worked their way through the ship's stock of preserved food. De Gerlache and Lieutenant Lequant refused to eat seal meat and ordered the crew to abstain. When scurvy left these officers bedridden, seal meat was presented as a medicinal stew and saved their lives. The officers' example in choking down the unpalatable food helped save the lives of many crew. Dr Cook thought his requirement that crews spend an hour a day naked before an open fire contributed to staving off the dread disease too, but this hypothesis fell apart when a crew member who refused to eat the seal meat failed to recover from their scurvy symptoms and died. Lieutenant Dunko was well liked by all, and his death hit another blow to the Belgica's already shitbox morale. The crew buried Lieutenant Dunko at sea by cutting a hole in the ice. On Midwinter's Day, de Gerlache shot an eclipse of one of the moons of Jupiter with his sextant. The timing and elevation provided an accurate fix to the Belgica's location, revealing a drift to the west since the ship became icebound. In July, the northern sky began to gain colour daily, and on the 22nd, the crew took to the rigging to see the sun peak over the horizon for the first time since May. Cook, in Through the First Antarctic Night, once more. Precisely at 12 o'clock, a fiery cloud separated, disclosing a bit of the upper rim of the sun. For several minutes, my companions did not speak. We could not, at that time, have found words with which to express the buoyant feeling of relief and the emotion of new life which was sent coursing through our arteries by the hammer-like beat of our enfeebled hearts. A few minutes after 12, the light was extinguished. A smoky veil of violet was drawn over the dim outline of the ice, and quickly the stars again twinkled in the goblin blue of the sky. Dr Cook led a two-week expedition by ski to seek a likely path to open water in the coming summer. His away team built an igloo near a polenia, populated by whales and leopard seals, giving them primacy in Antarctic igloo building but not much else. The ship continued to drift west through August and September. The boost to morale given by the first sighting of the sun in July eroded and gloom descended over the Belgica once more. The crew running low on coal for their stoves and boiler, and without much oil for the few lamps available, contemplated a second, likely fatal, winter among the ice. In October, Polenias melted in the surrounding ice, but quickly froze over again. Spirits rose, spirits sank. November was a month of storms. December somehow turned out colder than November, making Christmas a dismal affair of forced bonhomie and a rising sense of panic. On the 31st of December, a lookout spotted a Polenia 640 metres from the ship. Groomed to expect disappointment, no one paid much heed. But the gap in the ice remained for two weeks, 
and teams set about cutting a channel from the Polenia back to the ship. Dr Cook held that any crack in the sea ice likely to offer a route to open water would necessarily join the weak point the existing gap offered. A month of explosives work and frantic soaring saw the crew-made channel reach to within 30 metres of the Belgica, but then the wind changed. The hard-won opening closed. De Gerlache became despondent, began rationing the remaining food, and spoke of abandoning the ship. But in mid-February, a strong swell forced the gap open once more. The ship got up steam and made headway for the first time in a year, but reaching the Polenia still left the Belgica several kilometres shy of open water. Cook's prediction about cracks found vindication in mid-March, when the Belgica left its icy prison after 13 months and 17 degrees of westward drift. De Gerlache immediately set course for Belgium, but the long dark winter of uncertainty and paranoid recriminations left deep mental scars on many of the crew. Tollefsen recovered from the brink of madness on the voyage home to Norway with Amundsen aboard a mail steamer, but another Norwegian crewman, Knudsen, died shortly after reaching home. The Belgica reached Antwerp on 15th of November 1899. The Belgica demonstrated humans could survive the Antarctic winter, and the scientific findings of the voyage were published in a ten-volume series. The geological samples and bathymetry measurements demonstrated the Antarctic Peninsula constituted an extension of the Andes mountain range, though via the Scotia Arc rather than the Drake Passage, as might seem the obvious path. This geological revelation later played an important role in unravelling the mystery eventually explained by Alfred Wegener's theory of plate tectonics. The meteorological series gave the world the first measurements at such a high latitude through the southern winter, the lowest temperature reaching the realm where centigrade and Fahrenheit begin to converge, the record being negative 42 degrees centigrade, which is negative 45 degrees Fahrenheit. On his return to the USA, Dr. Cook advocated vigorously for red-blooded men to head south to take advantage of the penguin and seal meat as a means to establish a fur trade equivalent to that operating in the Arctic. Translocation of polar bears and other northern species targeted by furriers would provide the take in this thoroughly stupid proposal. I say stupid because Cook failed to realise the ease with which he and Amundsen stocked the Belgica was a direct result of the absence of terrestrial predators in the south. Bringing bears and foxes to Antarctica would see them thrive on the seals and penguins, but this would mean fewer seals and penguins available for furriers to survive on. Unless the selective pressure put on the local inhabitants brought about generations of neophobic seals and penguins very, very quickly, it's likely such introductions would have led to extinctions, after which no large animals could exist on Antarctic shores. Cook recognised that ownership would, under his proposed furry endeavours, become a critical point. With no claims beyond those by explorers, Antarctica didn't belong to anyone. Without clear ownership, potential investors in a project might balk. The thought of their capital being lost as more efficient or zealous projects usurped or thwarted their own, made such southern projects unpalatable. Cook argued that occupation provided the clearest case for ownership and pressed the USA to reinforce whatever historical claims it could and to set forth new projects under a government banner to establish the occupation ownership double-stroke. Frederick Cook would later claim to be the first to climb Mount McKinley, and contested against his former Arctic companion Robert Peary to claim primacy at the North Pole. Later examinations of his records indicate he falsified material to support both claims. In 1923, Dr. Cook received a six-year prison sentence for mail fraud, and he died in 1940. Amundsen wrote of him, He was the one man of unfaltering courage, unfailing hope, endless cheerfulness and unwearied kindness. As Ice Coffee recounts increasingly well-documented expeditions, I'll discuss several characters featuring Cook's apparent dichotomy of someone excelling in trying times and being a bit of an asshat in their non-trying life. I think we already saw hints of this pattern in Benjamin Morell, and, much as I respect him, I see it in spades in Sir Ernest Shackleton. I'll finish up my contribution to episode 23 with some notes about falsifying logbooks, as Frederick Cook did in his attempts to stamp his name on geographic milestones. 
Navigating today is child's play, but in order to know where you were and where you were going even 20 years ago, you really needed some skills and a lot of preliminary information. And this is still true of any mariner or aviator who wants redundancy in their spatial awareness. With GPS still considered an auxiliary system by governing bodies overseeing safety at sea and in the air. Navigators use dead reckoning, a regularly updated record of speeds and headings mapped against wind and current speeds and directions to make an approximation of position relative to a starting point. This system can come afoul through several factors arising from imprecise measurement of any variable or unexpectedly strong winds or currents acting in unexpected directions. Sextants allow navigators to make corrections to a position derived from dead reckoning by taking measurements of the sun or a star relative to the horizon and comparing phenomena of a known time of observation at Greenwich against their local time of observation, such as local midday or an occultation or eclipse of a solar body. The measurements provide numbers that navigators feed into equations that provide the correction, but it's not a quick and simple process, and in the days before pocket calculators, required a lot of reference to log tables to do the hard yards we now take for granted as requiring only the press of a few buttons. An expedition log provides not only the sequence of positions an expedition claims to have visited, but also the measurements and calculations used to determine those positions. In order to fake an expedition route, the fraudulent navigator must provide the same wealth of information. This requires they back-calculate from a latitude and longitude to the sextant shot, and add their own fake dead reckoning calculations for each leg of the journey. Compound all the sources for error there, and you'll start to figure that it's easier just to go and do the things you want to claim you did than it is to fake it effectively. At the time Dr. Cook chose to fake his accounts, any navigator worth their salt could, given time, weed out the inconsistencies. These might not provide conclusive evidence of perfidy, perhaps only representing crappy navigating, but the worse the discrepancies between what's claimed and what's demonstrated as occurring in the log, the less credibility the claimant receives. If you want to hear a grim account of a sailor sending themselves insane trying to track their actual path in one logbook and fake a record-breaking round-the-world solo voyage in another, Donald Crowhurst's experiences aboard the Tynemouth Electron is the story to chase up. The topic of fake navigation, while of interest in light of Frederick Cook's post-Antarctic endeavours, will become very important in later episodes. Episode 23 is rounded out by part of an interview I conducted with Peter Cleary in 2005. Peter taught me a lot of what I know about how not to die in Antarctica and oversaw diving operations at Cape Adair, among his many other duties at Scott Base, during my time there. He drove dog teams during several of his early Antarctic forays and is the only person of my direct acquaintance with that experience. Finally, I'd like to thank Ice Coffee listener William for getting in touch. I haven't made it particularly easy for listeners to contact me, but to date, whenever anyone's seen fit to chase me up, the feedback's been heartening. Thanks, William. Uh, Hori, that's the best one. Yeah, they get around those things. What latitude's Fiji? That's up in, oh. up in the 20s? Oh, yeah, at least... Yeah. I, I was surprised actually, I didn't realise they actually went to Fiji, but apparently they, they do turn up. So, native habitat in the pack ice, but well, capable of swimming? Yeah, yeah, I, I, they're, they're a loose pack animal from what I understand, and I mean, they're solitary, they don't, you don't tend to see them in, uh, in more than ones and twos, and well ones usually, and um, I think it's not really, I mean what I've read, it's not really understood exactly how they fully function you know, all the time, what they do, what they, where, where they hunt. I mean, I think, I think the American Scientist's tracking programs and was particularly successful. Yeah, so, yeah. Living yeah. among the pack, their, their usual diet would be other seals and penguins? Penguins seem to be preferential, I suspect, probably because they're easier. There's, there's a lot of, to which you would, what you say, scuttlebutt about them in that crab eaters, pretty near every crab eater that you see uh, have bad teeth marks on them. Now one of the theories that it's leopard seals attacking them and they have this bad scarring, 
one of the other things is actually killer whales that are gross. Now, crabbies are pack animals completely. They, all, they just live in the pack. You very rarely see them in the Murdo Sand. You very occasionally see them once the ice is broken up. But up the peninsula, and that, they're, they're quite common. They're the most common seal in Antarctica by, by miles. So, uh, probably I would suspect. And yet, fully grown crabby might be a bit difficult for a um, lep to, to take. I, I might be wrong there. I've never, like, I've never seen it. But certainly, preferentially, like around the uh, penguin colonies, they'll take penguins. They're, they're definitely into eating penguins. They relish them. They've got this quite interesting technique. They, they catch them and they, they grab them around the neck and they break them up. They actually marinate them. They, they whack their head back and forth and belt it on the so, And then they'll bite the legs and the uh, head off. And they don't like eating feathers. And then they eat all the guts. <laughs> They're all just marinated, nicely marinated in internals of the, of the a daily. Leaving uh, sort of a pink the, uh, Yeah, the gloves of the, the gloves of the feathers and the skin and all that. They don't like that. They don't like that. Obviously, the feathers don't go down very well, but they seem to know that have you ever seen them come this far up McMurdo when the no, ice breaks out? No, I've only seen them um, at Round Bird is where, the, where I've seen them most here. And it's quite an interesting thing about this. Um, like I, I worked at Rotherham where Christopher Brown was uh, um, killed and I never saw a leopard there. And we were actually out sealing for the dogs. We were actually catching. But um, we actually tried to do, there's some diving potentially going on at Cape Hallett. And there's not one record that we could find anywhere of people observing leopard seals. Now, I'm sure they saw them there because there's 25,000 breeding pairs of dailies that you've got to guarantee. Well, last year, Phil Liver was there and uh, they identified four in separate individual leopard seals. So, yes, they are around, I suspect they're around a good deal more than we think they are, but they are actually got very good camouflage coloration. Dark top, and I suspect unless you actually see them hunting something, you're actually going to go, go and see them around. They're also quite fast movers. They apparently can move on a soft beach, um, you know, like a muddy beach. They can go quite fast. They have quite a snake step. Apparently, you better run if they're going to decide to. Is my understanding. <laughs> Dock worker on the Coromandel Peninsula told me that. Um, he saw one take a Doberman part. Oh, I'm more than capable of that. Yeah. Have, have you actually ever seen this skull? Yes. Yeah. yeah. This one over. It's, yeah. 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 Uh, have you seen the size of the jaw? It's 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 a serious bit of biting apparatus. That, and they have this ability to actually articulate out a long way. I mean, it's it's not uh, it's not disarticulated like a snake, but it's it's they get serious. The jaws are very very wide. wide. And so. Possibly, you know, like this business about taking, maybe they can take uh, an adult crab eater or something like that. Um, and certainly they'd take a pup. But, uh, yeah. And the attack on the fella from the In the Footsteps of Scott trip. Yeah. There's a story there. Right. Um, there's a guy called Gareth Woods. And what happened um, with the Footsteps of Scott expedition, um, there were some complications over removing the base. So four of them stayed for a second winter. And the sea ice, now, I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact date, it was, was a roundabout midwinter. And the ice had gone out and it had refrozen. And it was at the point where it was obviously, you've got to realise it's dark. Okay, uh, they were going out fairly tentatively towards, out towards an accessible island uh, on the sea ice. Uh, but the sea ice, of course, had no snow on it at this stage because it was a very new sea ice. And the um, animal came up through the ice and grabbed him around the leg and started to drag him in. And the other two guys, I think it was the other two guys with him, had ice axes and they hit, the, hit it around the head and it let go and they pulled it back and he had some, I've seen the photograph of the lacerations and he had some serious lacerations in his car. He'd been bitten quite badly. Anyway, they, and they were starting to deal with it and it came up and had another go and they hit it again and then they pulled him back and they actually, uh, brought him down to McMurdo to the doctor here because he had some serious bites. It was, it was not a minor one, and I suspect possibly a fairly high level uh, risk of infection from a bite like that. But, you know. Now there's a, there's a little bit sidelight to that story because, and, and this is unproven, but some months later, 
an emaciated leopard seal was found on the ice dead. Um, and the, my conjecture is I wonder if it was an animal that had been caught by a loose pack animal. They're not like a wet. The wets can quite happily operate through quite thick, fast ice and run the cracks in it. That's not how a, a lep seems to operate. That they're in that looser pack. They're after where the where the adelies are uh, and all this sort of thing in the water. That's that's the, that's the they're operating. And I wonder if this animal had actually been caught by the referees and was unable to go north to, with the food because of course the adelies all piss off up into the, up into the open ocean, you know, and, and in the pack and. And probably, I suspect, in the winter, the, the leps operate up there to a certain extent because um, adelies are interesting. That, unlike um, some of the other penguins, they don't do very well if they haven't got pack for the win in the winter because they actually feed off the pack. They apparently require to get actually back on the pack to digest and all this sort of thing. Whereas some of the other species, like Gen 2, are quite happy just in open water. Um, so I suspect that's where the leps would go. They would go with the food source and, and what was going on. And do you know much about the Kirsty Brown incident at uh, Rotherham? Yep, yeah, uh, pretty, very unfortunate. It's the first recorded death of a human being with a leopard seal attack. Uh, again, it was in winter, uh, just before uh, we fire. She was snorkeling, and it was a, it's an area of rock around the edge of the base, and she was, my understanding, she was doing some quite shallow work. Um, she was measuring some uh, um, uh, growths on, on what, whatever she was measuring, it quite shown. She was just using a snorkel. Now, in both these cases, you know, the Gareth Wood attack and also the, the uh, her one, got to realise that, of course, against starlight, for the animal, you are actually quite heavily silhouetted. They can yes. see you. I mean, yeah. I know from working on, on open no. seals that the, the weds are obviously seen through against the sky because it's so much lighter. And she was taken. Um, they know that she was um, from, that from her uh, depth dive recorder. She was taken to about 60 metres, um, 68 metres or something, and then let go. And had been, uh, she was good. And uh, there was some guys in the boats. They were very quick. Got her instantly. Got her. Got her instantly. But yeah, sadly she was killed. So very, quite a traumatic incident. And there's a couple of quite interesting. Sidelights about this has been some quite recent publicity uh, about diving for tourists in Antarctica. And one of the publicity pushes that was in a very prominent American dive magazine was some photographs of people patting weddles, uh, pat, patting leopard seals underwater as divers. And in one case, uh, actually having their arm around one. Now, um, it's an interesting comment. Uh, you've met, you know, Rob Robbins. Well, Rob made the comment that he'd seen this article. Our rules are the same as, as the US are. Basically, if you see them, you can around, you get out of the water. And that's, that's, that's it. Of course, whether you will see them is, is another issue. But, um, but um, he's just wondered whether we were just being a little bit too precious as national programs, you know, as that, whether, whether it was, and then lo and behold, whether we back later this accident. So I, I it certainly mm, with some of the uh, correspondence that's been around the national communities it's cruel a bit of worry. Um, Rob is a very good person to speak to about leopards because he actually worked in amongst them at Parma and he's, he's obviously got far 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 more coming up. I've got some minor observational things but he, he's actually dived amongst them and uh, he can explain some of the background of some of, some of the work. There were, um, I mean, I, I think the, the behaviour is not always aggressive. I mean, there are occasions when they, they aren't. Probably, probably quite happy they're fed. They're not particularly interested in you. But, and I'd suspect probably they wouldn't stalk a diver preferentially. But if everything else is short, well, uh, they'll take what's going, I would suspect. So. And do you suspect that the divers on the cruise boats are acclimatising them to human presence, perhaps? I don't know. It's a possibility, uh, or th there is of course more leopards up that northern part of the peninsula that they're operating, uh, and I just wonder if it's a look they are being a bit blase about them, and whether they should treat them with a good deal of caution. You know, it's, uh, they're, they're, they're a top line predator, you know, you've got to accept that fact, and uh, 
just behave accordingly around them. <laughs> and, you know, some people possibly wouldn't quite like going, going diving with killer whales, but maybe that would be, be something that you would need to think about a little bit too. And you mentioned before getting Waddell seals for the dogs. You were one of New Zealand's um, last dog handlers? Uh, not, not, I was, I was dog handler here in 78, 79 and the dogs were removed in 86, so I was sort of in the last decade of it. But I also worked at Rother as a dog handler in, in the early 80s, 83 and 84, so I, I had about three seasons um, handling dogs in Antarctica. Uh, yeah, no, it was, a, it was a great job. Was, uh, were you sad to see them go? Uh, yeah, in many ways. I mean, I understand some of the implications for it. We were taking about 50 seals a year here for, for feeding the dogs. Um, and we probably, in summer, they were living off scraps from Scott Base and McMurdo. Uh, the, the seal was uh, for winter feed, because uh, they do require, I mean, they're living in conditions down to minus 15. Uh, they require very good. And it's also very, very good high-value food. So it was uh, a, a, a really uh, good food source for them. Uh, we used to vary the fat content that we would feed the dogs depending on how cold it was, etc. But I understand you know, there's, there's some implications. We were preferentially taking males in the weddle population. Of course, weddle population is territorial, uh, so you're probably having some effect on the sex ratio of the, of the population. Uh, I think on this side of the sand, it's about 900 individuals on this side, but there's more on this side. Then there is some interchange in movement. They tend to be fairly territorial. When I was working at Rothera, uh, where we also took seal, we were actually primarily, uh, not exclusively, but primarily taking crab eaters. Now there's a lot more crab eaters and they're also highly mobile. Uh, so it was a somewhat different situation. But there's similar issues. I mean, whether it's um, the, the dogs in either case were essential for the operation of the dogs. They were a historical thing over. But it was, they were good fun. Definitely, uh, they, they were the only inmates here that were always pleased to see you, uh, unlike other, some of the other people that you were working with. And uh, they were very good exercise for everybody, you know, those that wanted to go out with them and that sort of thing. And uh, often very hard work. Um, I suspect, I really didn't feel that I became a really competent dog handler until I'd been at it for about three years. Um, it's, 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 some, it's not something that you get on and turn the key and drive. There's quite a lot of psychology involved, both of you and the dogs, uh, and learning experience on both sides as to... Uh, in some ways, um, I feel that the dogs trained you rather than you trained the dogs, actually. There's some, some quite interesting, interesting elements to the whole, to the whole thing. <laughs> but no, it was, uh, it, it was, it was great. I mean, we, you didn't realise it at the time, but it was the end of an era. Um, they have their uses, uh, crevasse terrain, there's, you've got nine little sets of crevasse probes out in front of you, which is not a bad thing. Uh, and the dogs also, number one, they were very good on sea ice, they didn't, obviously didn't like getting wet, so they would be very sensitive to what, what they were on and what they were going on to. And some of them, not all of them, were very sensitive about crevasses. Some of them had absolutely no brains for anything at all and would fall into any, anything that was going. Uh, but you had like, their harnesses you know, so they actually got the suspended. So they had some safety issues. They 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 were, but of course, um, quite a lot slower. Uh, and yet, that's often a benefit for travel. You could travel in conditions that you wouldn't be able to travel in Scania, uh because you've obviously got more than a sense of eyes watching, and also you're only going about uh, four knots max. So, you know, you're, uh, you're cruising along. It's also a very good way to get fit, actually. Also, <laughs> it's actually quite hard work. Um, but yeah, no, I had some, I had some great trips um, I mean, over, to, over to McMurdo Sound and up into the, uh, up under the Royal Societies, up the Blue Glacier, and, um, down various places. That's, so, yeah, that's a long way from Scott Base. How, how many days trip would that be? Uh, was it just four days getting over there? I think. Oh, it was about seven or eight days. That one was quite. We were doing things like we, we had a party that was actually working at White Island that year and we used to do all the mail and stuff like that. that, was with that. Saved, saved out a couple of time and, and so that was that was great. Was, uh, but um, working on the peninsula with the dogs was quite a bit different because the climate there is quite a bit wetter 
and uh, in some ways quite a lot harder. And that's uh, rather where I was, it's 10 degrees further north, it's 68 degrees south as opposed to 77 here. So it was uh, a lot wetter snow, a lot, harder, a lot more variable snow, and in some ways a lot harder on the dogs. But uh, that was, yeah, that was a good learning experience. Were there particular favourites that get lead, or were there particularly strong dogs for leading teams? Oh, well, you actually choose your leader, and it's, it's an element of, of what you inherit with the team. Um, and the leader's got to have a couple of things. They've got to like being in front. That's, that's the thing. And that's not necessarily the dominant male. They've got to have the feeling that they're not nervous being out in front. And then the other thing is they've got to answer to voice. They've got to turn. And the way it really works is your leader and your first pair is where the real steering comes. And what you do with them is you work them as a threesome on a lot, very light, small sledge and keep working with them all the time so that they answer to voice. The other thing that they must not do, and this is where the trouble starts, they must not stop and come back towards the other dogs, even if they want to have a fight. You, they, they need to be, and provided they stay up, all your, your, your remaining pairs are where all the power is. That's where the, they're the grunt animals. They're the, where the real, the, the, the front three are where the steerage is. And they do a certain amount of pulling when things are slow, but they're primarily there to steer. And um, when I was here, I had one uh, male lead dog who in some ways was probably, if you'd let it sort it out, he probably would have been the dominant dog in the, in the pack anyway. But at Rotherer, I had a bitch as a leader. She was very intelligent. She wasn't particularly strong, but she was actually very, very bright. And you, that rapport that you build up with that dog and the, and the lead pair is where the real rapport is, because that, they, they've got to work to voice. We didn't use whips or anything like that. And so they've got to, to turn. And it becomes actually quite a safety issue. Like you're going through, uh, zigzagging through crevices. They've actually got to turn when you tell them. They can't turn when they decide that they want to and all that sort of stuff. So there's, 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 there's quite actually some real safety issues in, in this. But uh, again, it's practice. It's, you've got to keep, the more you work them, it was really noticeable, like you may be having all sorts of trouble on base and you know, like they, one of the big things is they haven't been run for a while and you put them all on to, to take them away for a run and they become incredibly excited. And then there's a fight because they haven't been near each other for a while so there's various sorting outs going on and um, that, that, but when you're running them for quite a few days, you know, about four or five days or something like that, they tend to calm down. And they tend to, they're working harder, um, they're becoming more relaxed about, about, it and, about running and all this sort of thing, and they will actually run more uh, uh, easier and better. And it, uh, you, know, you, you, you still do have the occasional fight. You have vendettas uh, that are held over many years. Um, there's interesting combinations. Um, you can't, you can run two males together if they're brothers and they were from the same litter. And what you do is you get a dominant and a less dominant one. And you keep them together, you're all right. Because what will happen is the dominant dog will beat up the other one every now and again. But usually not very badly, but will just maintain that dominance. And they will be perfectly happy as a pair. You can always run a bitch and a dog together but you can never run two bitches together because they will kill each other. And Actually, the only, yeah, fight the the only time I ever had to put dogs down was when two bitches had a fight. It happened on two occasions. And they were often long-term vendettas where two bitches would gang up, um, would just take every opportunity to get at each other. And uh, you obviously never, because you, you control the situation and you keep them chained and all this sort of thing and they're kept on lines and stuff. They never get a chance to fully sort it all out. And, and these things can build up over a while. So you actually have to be quite careful about that. But uh, it was, yeah, it, there's a lot of psychology about some dogs are really good. They, they actually uh, don't mind being at the back. You know, they're big, heavy draft horses. That, and the dogs we've got, I mean, like, I've spent time in Alaska. Uh, not in winter, unfortunately, but in, in summer. And the, the dogs there, they go from very, very lightweight, very fast dogs. Like they, they actually prospered Saluki into them, which is the, the big rangy, and so, so they go like stink. The dogs that we had down here were from West Greenland stock, 
they're uh, just big heavy draft horses in the order of males in the order of about 120 pounds or, or more. I mean, several of them could get their paws on my shoulders. They were big dogs. Uh, the bitches in the range of 75, 80 pounds. Whereas in Alaska, a big male is about 70 pounds. They're a lot lighter, a lot quicker, a lot faster. So we were actually the draft horsing to the spectrum because we wanted to move weight. We were, we were worried about overall speed, we were worried about um, you know, moving weight. Have the breeders kept in touch at all, or are you still right? Any the of dogs, them? the dogs that were, came out of uh, New Zealand, um, well, came out in '86 when they were out of Scott Bay, sorry, back to New Zealand, and they were actually um, uh, it's very complex what happened, but they were given to a guy called uh, Will Steger in Mid-Levy uh, in Minnesota, and Will was a very well-known dog handler, and two of the dogs, he, in 1990, four years later, actually did a crossing of Antarctica, from the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, right across now through Murney, right, went through, it's a, the, the longest ever crossing, five miles, and two of the Scott-based dogs were actually on that crossing. Uh, the rest of them were found out, some of them were getting a little bit older, um, and one of them was a very, quite a, he was one of my, well, he was three months old when I arrived, arrived here, and then I, he was an adult by the time I left the first time. It was a dog called Jens, he was, um, uh, he actually was retired and ultimately went and lived in Alaska. And when he died, uh, they actually um, mounted him in a taxi dinner. And he's actually one of the two dogs on the spot at the Canada Museum now. So he's, uh, and his, the other dog was there was a dog called Apolodoc. Apolodoc is his great grandfather. So they're, they're both in the, in the it's, it's actually quite funny because I, I was saying to somebody the other day, it's quite odd having had intimate knowledge of what is now part of a museum display. <laughs> it's starting to get a little bit dated. Um, but no, so those dogs, and um, some of them were used in breeding and that sort of thing. Uh, I was actually talking um, to the guy that uh, actually escorted them over, um, and uh, Grant was saying that uh, it was really funny because these dogs had never seen trees. and. They, they were taking them, they off offloaded them in LA and they were driven over, um, driven to Minnesota, I think, or flown to Minnesota and then taken out to the where Stager had his dog lot. And apparently one of the dogs actually started to bark at a tree, which was quite entertaining for the locals because there were a few trees in Minnesota. Um, and uh, it was um, it was quite, they, they were not used to trees at all, they were just used to the only thing that was upright was people and you pissed on them, so it was... Uh... Thanks, so that's pretty much exactly what I was after. <laughs> right, yeah, sorry, it's a bit, bit ad hoc. No, no, no. no, no.